Well, it's a blessing to be here with you all. And for those of you watching online, thank you for uh, not being on Hulu or Netflix or Disney Plus at this moment in time. And uh, it's a blessing to be with you. Um, and if I can give a little extra plug for classes, um, it's just a good time of the year to really look at all these different things that we can be engaging with. Um, you know, we have one of the classes that's really on learning how to become community all over again and learning the spiritual disciplines of community. We have a class that um, if you're somebody that's already a leader and you're trying to kind of re-inspire yourself and be re-equipped, there's a confident leadership class classes on marriage, um, men's and women's classes that are, are there to help equip and connect. Um, all of these are great things to connect with. And so I, I really encourage you to go and check those out if you haven't done it already online um, this weekend. So, um, so, so this message, just to prepare you in advance, is very weighty. It's, it's very ominous, but it's very worthwhile subject matter. Uh, I encourage you to bear through the entire message. So if you are watching online, um, stick with it. And uh, to see the other side. And, and really, you, you don't want to just hear the message this weekend. You also want to be here next weekend when Pastor Lance finishes us talking about Lamentations. So if you only listen to this weekend and you delay next weekend, you're going to be lopsided. And so I really encourage you to kind of bear through not only this weekend, but, but this next weekend as well, as well. Now, the first weekend of our year in the year of becoming where Pastor Lance introduced us, he said that we wanted to learn how to engage in the Holy Spirit process. And we've been spending four weeks to, to learn how to lament to, to really learn that practice. How do you sit in the mess and know that God made a way to move forward? And, and that's where we have to learn how to lament. And, and we're very used to expressions of how we're feeling and, and ways of connecting with God. And we think of very popular Psalms like Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me to water. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel, fear no evil. Well, the book of Lamentations, what we're going to walk into to this weekend, um, it's very psalm-like. It takes us through the valley of the shadow of death where there's fear and sadness and confusion, but it's going to show us the other side of something like Psalm 23 because you're going to see it give expressions like, God, you are my enemy. God, it feels like you've abandoned me. I don't know what to do with you, God, and this hurts. And so because of that, Lamentations doesn't tend to be the book that people go to for spiritual devotion or reflection. <laughs> but we are given this unasked for and unwanted and yet priceless gift in Lamentations because it's a poetry of pain. And it provides us with a, uh, a vocabulary to, to speak in grief and to process. And, and, and from this, it becomes an aspect and an act of worship because we learn how to speak honestly and to face life full in the face. Even when God feels silent, even when it feels like our prayers seem one-sided, it gives you the vocabulary to do that. And, and really, my, my big question for all of us here and those watching online is we wanna realize and we wanna figure out if you were to speak how you felt in this last year, out loud, in your lowest moments of grief and frustration and anger and distress, what would you say? And I know there's a lot of words and a lot of moments that are probably coming to our minds. 
And it's a tough question. It's like somebody walking over and you have an open wound and they take their finger and they jab it and they go, tell me how that feels. (laughs) And there's so many words we want to (laughs) use. Well, Lamentations helps us with this question. It's, It's a book that pays detailed attention to the exact ways in which suffering takes place. It takes with total seriousness the feelings that follow in the wake of tragedy and judgment, and then it shapes those sufferings, it shapes those feelings into forms of responses to God. It shows us that it is very important to pay attention to how we feel, especially when we're dealing with pain. But this is something that's so hard to do. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One is that we act as if people should not be in distress and anguish. And so we devalue the experience of suffering. It's so easy for us to deny the encounter of reality that people have and try to seek to eliminate it through different levels of psychoanalysis, environmental change, social, political change. We think that if we can just set things right through mere goodwill and creativity, people will will get there. And we spend so much time in our world, in our culture, averting pain and tragedy. We try so hard and we use so much money and so many resources and so much energy trying to insulate ourselves from things that are hard. Because our default mode is to keep it out of sight and pretend it's not there. And sometimes this becomes so, so unhealthy. Because something goes wrong and we don't know what to do with it. And as Pastor Lance talked about in our first few weeks... Lament is not something that's part of our cultural tool belt. Or if it is, we haven't been shown how to use it. I I think of the wisdom you get from the very deep and reflective movie, Spider-Man Homecoming, where he gets this Spider-Man suit from Tony Stark and he has all these features to it and he has a time where he's trapped inside of this warehouse and that's when he starts learning all the different things that he can do with this suit. This is the time for us to learn what to do with lament. And see, in a lot of communities, mourning tends to be very quiet, expressionless, very private ordeal. But in other communities around the world, it's full of expression and it's loud. You know when people are weeping. You know when people are hurting. And you have to remember, in the biblical world, they recognized a need for a time of mourning. They chose extended periods of time to express their sorrow and their grief and to sit with it. It was a time where everything else could wait because we were going to mourn. And your family and your tribe and your village made that possible. And so when you wept, you wept with friends. When you wept, you wept with family. It wasn't hushed. It wasn't hidden. The sound of weeping, the sound of crying out in your frustration, your anger, it was enlarged. Now, sorrow and lament were expected. It was a normal way of life for them. It wasn't viewed with the stigma that we tend to have in our modern culture that there's something inherently negative in crying out or lamenting. Today, Today, it's not uncommon for people to avoid any and all negativity possible. And a lot of this is because we've been distorted by a lot of stuff very subconsciously from far Eastern philosophy that believes that someone else's negative energy can bring us down or throw off our balance, which results in us having a selfish distancing of people that are suffering in our life because we don't want to be negatively affected. And so we have a suspicion that lament is not this virtuous response to God. And that's so wrong. We also have this inherited allergy towards vulnerability. We're afraid to expose ourselves, and we don't allow space internally or externally to do that. 
And we forget, which is why we need a series like this, that God permits us to voice our pain with brutal honesty, but to voice it to him. Say it to him. I I was getting a chance to interact with uh, another kind of fellow colleague um, online, and he posted this thing up about one other element that I said, hey, can I use that in the sermon this week? Because this is so right on. Because he talked about something that comes from post-traumatic stress called the moral injury or the suspicion of hope. And this is what he wrote. He said, it's a form of despair in which one is simply suspicious of being hopeful or even allowing oneself to embrace the idea that there could be some reason for hope. And so we feel like we can express it, but then immediately we back away and we overwhelm it with all the reasons that we shouldn't be hopeful. And then we put ourselves in a spiral. Well, Lamentations is gonna come in and show us that language and that poetry and that, that, that way of talking to God. And we're really just going to talk through chapters one, two, four, and five this weekend. And then Pastor Lance is going to come in next week and focus us into chapter three. But let me give you a little bit of background and context for understanding the book. The book itself is actually just called in the Hebrew, how, echa, how. And that's, that's how they write the name of the book, how. Because that's the cry that people are saying all throughout it. How, how am I, how is this? How, and it just goes through and through. It wasn't until later that they put the word wailings or lament in as another way of putting it. But this whole book comes out of the brief context of the fall of Jerusalem and Judah, of the city of Jerusalem being destroyed and sacked by the Babylonians in 586 BC. So you can find all of the backgrounds of the history of that in 2 Kings 24 to 25 and in Jeremiah 52 that you get a chance to see this part of their history of what it meant for the city of Zion to be desolated, for the temple to be lost, for everything to appear destroyed. And and it actually happened in two ways. Nebuchadnezzar in um, 597, he came down and besieged Jerusalem because they they weren't playing nice. It's probably the best way of putting it. And he comes and he captures their king, King Jehoiachin, and all of his family, takes them away into exile. They take parts of of the temple worship And they cut up the gold and the silver pieces and take that with them back to exile. And they take 10,000 other of the elite and the best people in Jerusalem back in exile. That's when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Ezekiel would have went. But that wasn't it. They left another leader there. And about eight years go by and that leader decides, I'm not going to play nice either. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes back in 588 and he spends two years besieging Jerusalem. He sets up siege works all around it and he cuts off their food supply. He cuts off their water and people are slowly dying within the city. There's severe famine. Their king tries to flee and he's, his sons are killed. His eyes are gouged out. And then in 586, in that summer, his general Nebuchadnezzar, because everyone has to have a Nebu name, He comes in and he destroys the city. He burns the temple down. He burns the houses down. He throws the walls down. That's where Lamentations comes from. It's built around a communal reflection on national tragedy. And communal forms of mourning happened a lot, but they were rare and often reserved for major events like this. For Israel, they would read the book of Lamentations every year on the fifth month, on the ninth day, to remind themselves of what happened and to remind themselves of how this left them feeling. They would read it again 
like quite frequently because when, when Jerusalem would fall in 70 AD to the Romans, it happens on the same exact day. And so they would reflect on all this. And again, this comes up in our world in day two, that we end up having communal national tragedies that we end up reflecting on, whether that's Sandy Hook or the stuff in Orlando or the death of Billy Graham or a historic national tragedy like Pearl Harbor or September 11th or the death of a person. For instance, right now, communally, locally, there are people lamenting and grieving over Deputy Gibson that just gave his life in the last week as an officer. And, and this book, it sets a context and a foundation for us to really reflect. And, and there's a distinguishing aspect of it that we're not gonna talk about in this sermon that relates to the disobedience of the people of Israel and Jerusalem and the discipline of the Lord. Because they recognized that they were deserving what was happening, but that's not what we're gonna focus on. That's not the part we're gonna show in this message. But the suffering that you're going to hear them share about is very real and it's very graphic. And you're going to see that for them, it wasn't just with how they dealt with tragedy. It was how they dealt with the discipline of the Lord. But what they learned from it, and this is where we're going to kind of leap off from, is that they saw in the midst of crisis, that's when one seriously learns and reflects on God's character and his relationship to his people the most. It's when you get to the darkest, lowest spot that you reach out with so much more eagerness. Lament is not an appeal. Lament, sorry, lament is an appeal to God, but it's based on the confidence we have in his character and his nature. But, but let me tell you one other feature before I read you some selections out of Lamentations. You have to remember that this book is a poetic book and poetry is the vehicle it comes in and that form means something. And, and a lot of us, we aren't poets. <laughs> And we're not all creatives. And this is where you have to lean in to your creative sides, whether it's there or not. You have to lean in to those friends and family that are creatives because creatives, artists, musicians actually help us with learning how to process and to move forward. But it's not about their skill. It's about the content that all of us draw from in order to give the expression. And we all have the content. We all just don't feel like we're adequate at expressing the content. And this, this form in poetry gives us vivid language and poetic language that views a tragedy from an emotional, social, and spiritual perspective, but it does it all poetically. And you're going to see that what happened left a major psychological impact on all the people. They'll say things like Lamentations 3, 17, and 18, where they say, I gave up on life altogether. I've forgotten what the good life is. I said to myself, this is it, I'm finished. God is a lost cause. Whew. A lot of people that express things like this, they feel like sometimes it doesn't feel like a soul within miles cares for my soul. That no one listens and that no one cares. And that's what you'll see come up again and again is they don't feel the comforter in the moment. Although God will continually dialogue with them through the prophets, through the rest of the biblical story, to say, comfort, comfort my people. I will come down. I will take on suffering. I will be the one that experiences the gravest elements of this so that you can experience comfort. Now, I want you to just listen with me to some of the expression. I'm not gonna read the entire book of Lamentations to you because that would take us 22 minutes if I read it fast. 
But I'm going to read portions, parts that I think resonate. And I encourage you to just listen and allow the meanings of the words to interact in the dialogue with God's revelation in Jesus and to see how God is guiding you and guiding me in the spiritual community redeemed by Jesus from words like this. And like I said, it's heavy and, if it's, and it's ominous. And if you're watching online and you just came on, I need to repeat that again because you're gonna be coming in midway. But chapter one starts reflecting on this by saying, how lonely and quiet sits the city that was full of people like a widow. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. She now finds no resting place. Pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Majesty has departed. Verse seven, she remembers all the precious things that were hers. You jump ahead to 122. Her groans are many and she turns her face away. They hear, but there is no comforter. And in verse 9, 16, 17, 21, and verse 2, they see that there is no comforter. Her fall is terrible. There is none to help her. She says, Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am, signif- I am insignificant. I am despised. Verse 12, she says, look and see, is there any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger? He has left me stunned. My heart grows faint all day long. Verse 16, for these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate for the enemy has prevailed. Verse 20, look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. That's just chapter one. Chapter two turns it into what they feel like the Lord has done. That he feels distant and they feel attacked, not just by the world, but by God. And they're both afraid and not afraid of his anger. Chapter two, verse one, it says, the Lord in his anger has made dark and a covering with a cloud over me. The Lord has broken down strongholds. He's brought down the kingdom. He's cut down all the mighty. He's withdrawn, all of it. He's withdrawn his right hand. He's poured out his fury like a flaming fire. He has swallowed up everyone. The Lord has laid waste. The Lord has laid in ruins his temple. He's scorned his altar. He disowns the holy place. God made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, the rhythms of celebration and rest. He spurned king and priest. He's spurned prophet and wealthy. And he's multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentations. Starting in verse nine, it starts talking about how justice has sunk into the ground. It's ruined. Leadership has shut down. Law is no more. Prophets have no vision from the Lord and people are now going into postures of mourning. They're sitting on the ground in silence. They've thrown dust on their heads and they've put sackcloth on. Young women have had their heads bowed down to the ground. Verse 11, it says, My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Verse 13, it says, what can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? Like somebody comes in and goes, what can I do? But then their response right after that is, for your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Their heart cried to the Lord, 
Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest and your eyes no respite. Verses 19 to 22, arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. And then it will continue talking about that suffering and the loss of people that used to hold and raise their children. You move into chapter three and it gets personal, first person. I am the man who has seen affliction. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Verses seven and eight, he has walled about me so I cannot escape. He's made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayers. He blocked my ways. He made my paths crooked. He filled me with bitterness. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions, the bitterness and the poison. Verse 20, my soul sinks and collapses within me. Jump ahead to verse 44. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can cast through. You've made us scum and garbage. And the end, 49 to 51, my eyes flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. Now, if you just joined us online, I need to explain to you (laughs) that we are going through a book called Lamentations that's a heavy book. It's ominous, it's weighty, but it's expressions of anguish and grief. Let me take us a little farther now, chapter four. Talks about how wealth is empty and has little purpose, how the sacred stones, the holy stones of the sacred places lie scattered, and then it goes through the conditions during the siege and how all are equal under the anguish. It's gonna talk about the wealthy being in ash heaps, that royalty are not recognized because their skin has shriveled on their bones, that prophets and priests are despised. Verse 11, it says, the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion. Verses 17 and 18, our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we waited for a nation which could not save. But let me walk you into chapter five, where it calls the Lord to remember as they go through this. It puts the matter before God. Chapter five, verse one says, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Everything seems upside down, and then it spends 12 verses talking about how people's inheritance and homes have gone to strangers and foreigners. They are so immensely dependent. They're weary and have no rest. Everyone else rules over them. There's none to deliver them. All princes and elders have no respect. The young men grind at the mill. Boys, little boys stagger under loads of wood. Old men are no longer at the gate ruling and young men walk away from music, which is such a distinct metaphor. And then verses 15 to 18 kind of starts closing it down. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, and jackals prowl over it. Heavy. I like how Eugene Peterson says it. He says, suffering and distress explode into our lives and pain is scattered like shrapnel. These expressions, they feel dismal and dark, and yet there is something magnificent and useful happening in this book, and that's what I wanna try to show you. 
We're not going to go through verse by verse. But I want to show you some of the bigger things that this book is showing us that we can do to move forward. Because the content in this book, it's not going to address why people suffer. It's not going to address why God allows it. Nor does it give you a three-step solution of how to get through it. But it gives you a sense of the emotional response that we can have when we're in anger, when we're in pain, when we're in distress, when we're in grief. And so I wanna show you three distinct things. The first one has to do with one of the poetic elements because it's a poetic song and it has this chorus pattern and they call it a Hebrew acrostic. An acrostic is basically an A to Z alphabetizing in the way you write. So the first sentence, you start with the letter A. The second sentence, you start with the letter B. And then they do that, but in the Hebrew alphabet, there's only 22 letters. So they only do 22 lines with three stanzas each. Aleph, bet, gamel, dalet, het, tet. And it goes through the Hebrew alphabet. And I know you just really wanted to hear me do the Hebrew alphabet. And they're doing that structurally for a purpose. And, and it's kind of this funny Sesame Street meets Eeyore meets the Holy Spirit happening in this structural thing. But here's what I want you to see. This is across the entire book. Chapters one, two, and four have that acrostic, these 22 lines each, one time through them. And they give it this dynamic feel that invites the reader into the plot to feel alongside the community. Then chapter three does it three times. It does that acrostic pattern three times, but every line, it starts within the stanzas. So it'll be Aleph, 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 Bet, 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 Gummel, 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 Dalit, Dalit, Dalit. And it goes through and it keeps doing it and it does it so that there's 66 verses in chapter three. And in that chapter, it personifies it. It allows the reader to consider their own personal experience in a similar fashion. And within that chapter, specifically on the latter half, you get some flashes of hope and you get the perspective on how we can move forward. And that's what Pastor Lance is gonna talk about next weekend is that flash. Which is why, again, if you only listen to this message, you're gonna get lopsided. You're gonna be walking on one leg through a week. So you need, to, you need to be able to come back and listen to that. But here's what's interesting. Chapter four, like I said, has that pattern. Chapter five falls out of the pattern and it gets rid of the acrostic and it's shorter because things feel like they're falling apart still. But right there at the very end in verses 18 and 19, it does like a mini acrostic where every word goes by the alphabet. So what? Matt, you just like to talk about weird structural things of the Old Testament. No, here's what. This, this A to Z pattern, it's meant to facilitate memory, but it's doing something more. It's helping us make sure that the grief and the despair that we have are expressed completely from A to Z. It helps us to cover the whole ground, to organize our grief. Because we try so hard to get to the other side of anguish so quickly, and, and, we, and we try to take shortcuts because it's so painful, lamentation slows you down enough so that you have to go through it in an order. But at the same time, it propels you forward so that you don't just get stuck sitting in mud and just dwelling in darkness forever and ever. And, and so this ordered structure, it's a contrast to the disorder and the pain and the confusion, and it reflects the process of facing the heavy realities. 
And so it helps us to emphasize that the poems are full or complete, meaning that mourning, the despair, the things that are hard have their limits. They can be worked through and then be completed. And that completeness instills hope. When you know that there's an end to something, there's hope. And by doing this, someone that's suffering no longer obsesses, they no longer control. It helps them to detail their sympathy and at the same time tells you there is a termination. It puts a limit on repetition. It reminds us that if there's a beginning to evil and suffering, there's also an end to it. We're able to say enough. Evil is not inexhaustible. It is not infinite. It is not worth a lifetime of my attention. And so it addresses anger, our anger, God's anger, and the most personal of relationships, prayer. And, and it's interesting because when you read through Lamentations, which I encourage you to read through the whole book yourself, you're gonna see that the missing voice in the whole book is God speaking in response to the people. But that's intentional in this structure because it's giving full space for humans to voice their condition and their experience. And God is the best one to dis direct your distress to. He's the best one to cry out to, and it's permitted and invited. And so repeating this acrostic is important because timing is important. And, and, and here's what I'm talking about with all of this. There's this cycle that once we identify pain and we're able to share it and we're able to talk through it and cycle through it, we move to completely placing it before God. And so when you go through that A to Z and when you use the letters up, you can loop to the beginning and restart but after you've done that X amount of times, three, 30, 300, you realize the territory has been covered. And then you come to a place where you can finish and understand that truth that the impact of what has happened will not go on forever. It will not just keep getting worse, that things can and will stop. You can move the track forward. So here's the fill in the blank. Our distress is a historical event, not an eternal condition. Our distress is a historical event. It happens in one specific place in time or stretch of time, but it's not an eternal condition. There were good things before, there are good things to come, and we can live in that hope. Suffering tends to assume its place as one among other things, but it is not everything, and it is not our whole world. And so more than a poetic expression, this is a search for redemptive roots. Lord, where are you? Lord, how are you gonna reframe this? Lord, how are you gonna deliver me? And it makes you have to ask, how deep are my trust in those roots? Now, I had a chance when I was coming out of Bible college, I moved back in 2002 from Canada back to Sacramento and I was working at my home church and I got a chance to reconnect with a friend I had in high school, but we were like kind of surface friends and we got a chance to spend more time together and, and I came back in April of 2002 and my friend Cleet, and he goes to Bridgeway here now, his mom was on her last months of a three and a half year battle with cancer. And Cleet was a, a cool guy, he was a basketball player, um, you know, just, just a great guy to be around. But uh, Cleet and I started getting together because this was heavy on him. Because not only was he watching his mom go through this, he was the one taking care of her 
because his dad was busy and his sister was too young. And so he was weighing on all, he was taking the weight of all this. So I remember going to the Starbucks at the birdcage over there at the Barnes and Nobles and Cleet and I would meet every week. We'd go there, we'd sit and we'd just sit down and I'd ask him how he's doing and he would just go through. And it was one of the first times, and I got his permission to talk about this. It was one of the first times that I got a chance to watch the cycle right in front of me. Because Cleet would sit down and he would go through A to Z, how he's felt. And he would repeat some of the same language. And he would dwell on some of the same things. And I tried to direct, I didn't try to give answers, I just tried to direct him to keep expressing. And I watched him over those months and his mom passed away in that July. But you know, there was still grief to process. And I watched him though go through and come to points of realization where I've already, I've already covered this ground. But he still might go back into the loop, but then he would go, I, th- I think I'm starting to feel and see where there's hope forward. And then we might go through the loop again. And I got a chance to watch this with him, but it was actually a blessing for me because I was entering into the pain and suffering of another person that I couldn't experience. And I had these bungled attempts to help but I got a chance to watch God use, and I had just studied this in Lamentations, and in Eugene Peterson had a chapter in a book called Five Smooth Stones that he talked about all this. And I got a chance to watch all of this tool be used in the life of community. And I was talking to Cleet today on the phone, and it was awesome because I was talking to him about how formative I saw that moment being for him. Because whereas a lot of other 21-year-old guys could have taken all of that frustration and anger and pain and gone every which direction with it, it led Cleet closer to the Lord. And it grew his character. And I see how that still has shaped him and grown him. And it doesn't mean that things are perfected. Him and I have talked about how there's still some hurt there. There's still some stuff that every once in a while he's going back through. But he was able to move forward. And so that's where I think this acrostic is a, is a tool that the whole book sets up for us to show us how to go through that cycle. But that's just one of the things. Let me give you a little mini second one. And that's learning how to do communal lament. And, and part of that comes off of what I just shared you with my friend Cleet. To learn how to sit with other people and process together. This is something that we as humans need to learn to do. But as Christians, we must do. Because for people, when others come and weep with them, it reminds them that there's more to their suffering than their own weakness or their own selfishness or their own sense of loss. When someone else joins us, there's a validation that my suffering means something. I am not alone in how I feel because someone else cares alongside of me. And that outpouring when somebody comes together invites more expression and it provides a space and a way for renewal and what, what some people will call a catharsis, which is just a fancy way of saying a cleansing, a purging. That when we come together communally and reflect on these things together and sometimes reflect on the things that all of us are experiencing together in frustration and anger and pain, it purges and cleanses us so that we can move forward together. I, I like what uh, one writer says. He says that laments don't always seem to fit into my life. 
he says, I don't always have this devotional use for them. And I know there's a lot of us that we're going, this last year has been hard, but it hasn't been as hard for me as for others. And so we're like, what am I supposed to do with this? And this is where we have to realize that the point of such a practice like lament is to put us among the community of the saints across the world, across the area. Because I may not be pursued by enemies or hemmed in on every side, but I know that there are Christians in Syria that are. I may not be dealing with cancer or COVID at this very moment, but I know that there are people that are. And so learning this lament and learning how to go through this cycle, it helps us grow a prayerful imagination. And, and, and we realize that lament praying is a participation in the prayer life of the church across the world. And so it takes me outside of Matt Bach into grieving communally alongside of others. Christopher Wright says it this way. He says, part of the horror of human suffering is to be unheard, forgotten, and nameless, to be thrown aside. Lamentations is a summon to remember the realities endured by real people like me, to bear witness and pay heed to their voice, that we can learn to pay attention, and when we've heard them, to consider, how is that gonna shape my own expression? But this is, that, this is where I wanna take you to that third thing, the metaphors that are across the book of Lamentations. And there are so many metaphors in that book and they're drawn from all over the Bible. They're drawn from certain Psalms. They're drawn from the Isaiah 52 and 53 of the suffering servant. They're drawn from Job's lament. They all take on a familiar look. And what happens is that in traumatic times, people often revert to their traditional expressions, their traditional images, their traditional rhythms, the language that our tradition has left us. Those are the types of words we use. But what you have to understand with that is that they're doing that because when you put a name to pain, it's the first step to recovery from it. And, and there's a lot that we went through in some of what I, ref, what I referenced, where they said that they were engulfed by fire, they were entrapped in a hunter's net, they were trampled like grapes in a wine press, they were shot by an arrow, they were afflicted by illness, they were imprisoned in a dungeon, they were attacked by fierce predators, they were ground into dust. And I don't think a lot of those seem very relational to us right now. But that's why I think what Lamentations invites is it invites you, it invites me to relearn metaphor. What are the word pictures that you would use to describe how you feel? I was stirring on this this morning. I got up early and I was working more on the message. And when I wrote that down, I was like, Matt, what is yours? And I think the image for me was of a bonfire that just had a little bit of coals and every time you go to put a wet piece of wood on it, the wet piece of wood doesn't seem to catch fire, it just seems to smoke. And then you guys know what happens with a bonfire, anywhere you stand is where the smoke is. That was my metaphor. Because I've been standing around a lot of bonfires. <laughs> and I've been dealing with my own fireplace and wet wood and, and trying to figure that out. That, that's something that's real to me. And I think we have to relearn metaphor. And so one of the things that we encourage you to do, I'm gonna give you some homework, <laughs> is I, I encourage you this week to write out, paint out, cry out the names of the things that are wearing on you. 
You guys have been hearing about this resource, resource page we have for the Lament series that you can go on Bridgeway's resource page and you can go and it gives you prompts on how to write a lament. I want you to go and do that. I want you to go and ask yourself, what are the metaphors? What are the word pictures that describe how I feel right now with God, with myself, with our nation, with our governor, with your husband, with your wife? Be gentle. But you don't go and post all that stuff on social media. You direct it to the Lord. And so I encourage you, I challenge you to do that. And it takes us back to that question I asked at the very beginning. If we were to speak how we feel out loud from those moments of grief or frustration or distress over this last year, what would you say? And so I want you to write it down. I encourage you to write it down. The, the book of Lamentations, it, it finishes with this final poem that leaves the question open. Because it says, God reigns forever and is capable of restoring Jerusalem. But then it says, but God may have forsaken and rejected the holy city. They saw God as an eternal king, as most high, as the one who resides above and exerts control but they still felt like he was so distant. And so like Lamentations, we look at our present situation, our present feelings, we look at our past devastation, but like the book of Lamentations, we are drawn towards that fact that amidst the suffering, we are already experiencing the Lord's deliverance and there still is hope in the waiting. And we know that because of the salvation in Jesus Christ. So this poem, it pushes us to read past the A to Z and to explore the rest of God's word. You don't just read Lamentations. You go and you read the rest of scripture and that takes you into the passion narratives where Jesus goes and he's arrested and he's tortured and he's crucified and he dies. But we know it doesn't end there. It points still towards resurrection, towards life and towards hope. And so much of what we recoil at, and that seems so heavy and so ominous in the book of Lamentations, are little pictures of what Jesus would suffer as he bore the sins of the world. That alone is reason enough to read Lamentations. We need to linger on these images long enough to appreciate the depth of what Jesus has done for us. And if you don't know it, to come and experience it. Because what we do know is that God's love and mercy goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. His anger does not. God made a way to move forward because he is the ultimate source of the new beginning. And let me close with one more statement. I think it's from N.T. Wright. He says, lament is not our final prayer and it's not the last words in the Bible. It is a prayer in the meantime. While, cry, while crying is fundamental to humanity, Christians lament because they know God is sovereign and good. Christians know his promises. We believe in his power to deliver. We know the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. And if Jesus can beat death, 
he can handle whatever is going on in your life, in my life, in our life, in our nation, in our world. And lament is the language, it's the vocabulary for living between those two poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. And so let me pray for us and then I encourage you to do your homework and to write out your own lament and if you need helps, go to that resource page and to read the entire book of Lamentations because although it's heavy, it builds in you that way to move forward. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we still have anger and pain. And there are people here, Lord, that are writhing in the pain in their heart and their spirit, Lord, there's people that are writhing in the pain in their bodies. There's people that are listening or watching this, Lord. Some of them right now, some later. That God, there are so many words and we're afraid to say them to you because we know that we are gonna be unfiltered. And yet, Jesus, I see you sitting down right next to us. and saying, speak it, Matt. Cry out to me. Still love you. This is not the only part of the story. And so God, I pray that those realities would wash over us. I pray, Lord, that you would show us how to use our Spider-Man suit. <laughs> that we would learn the vocabulary of grief and that, Lord, we would come along one another in community to do that. So we love you and we ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. amen.